welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So thanks to our one of our Patreon subscribers, Vanessa, this week we are going to be talking about Labyrinth, the extremely classic 1980s movie starring David Bowie and a teenage Jennifer Connelly in like her first big breakout role. Uh, this is basically the definition of a cult movie. Um, loads of people saw it as kids and it kind of shaped their psychosexual futures <laughs> um, it's like for those who aren't aware I'm sure most people have seen this if they're listening to the podcast but it's a relatively simple kind of fairy tale story in the same vein as something like Alice in Wonderland about a teenage girl who's she's she's from the 1980s she's kind of a classic slightly self-absorbed teen she has to babysit her younger brother and she wishes he'd be taken away and then the goblin king played by david boy kidnaps him and she has to go off on a quest through this kind of magical labyrinth full of jim henson muppets to regain her baby brother from him and it's very much a romance between her and the goblin king there's a lot of very exciting kind of power balances going on between them a lot of material here to work with and it is also technically suitable for children so <laughs> this film has had a lot of impact on people and we completely understand why morgan you just watched this movie i did so we can talk about our our differing histories with labyrinth the first time i watched it was a mere not even quite five years ago which is not the standard experience that i think most people in our general age group have with this film. But as I'm sure I have mentioned before, when I was a child, the only films that we were allowed to watch were Disney movies or films of that ilk. Not in a like crazy, extremely author- authoritarian way, like there were a couple other things that we did watch, but that was basically the media diet of my household. So I never watched this as a child. And then around five years ago, Hurricane Sandy hit New York City. And my roommates and I were stuck in our apartment. We never did lose power, which was miraculous, but we were stuck in our apartment for several days because you just couldn't get anywhere. All the public transit in New York City was shut down. And um, one of them had the idea that we should all watch Labyrinth. I don't remember how this came to pass. And all of them had been kids who watched this like a lot of times and were really obsessed with it. And they were all having that kind of reaction you have when you rewatch a film you loved. And I was like, what is happening? Like, what is going on? What the fuck is this movie? This is so fucking weird. Which it is. And then when the wonderful Vanessa, who pledged $50 and dictated that we watch this, messaged us and said this is what she wanted, I was like, this will be a good reason for me to watch this again and sort of reassess it a little bit. And I had such a good time watching it. I was like, this is really weird, but also great (laughs) it's so much fun and just like bizarre and I kept kind of thinking like what if I had watched this when I was 10 I feel like everything would have been different (laughs) this is wow there's a lot going on it's a lot happening well you see what (laughs) I find quite intriguing right is I I didn't watch this I guess young enough you know I I saw this in my mid-teens when I was already very much into David Bowie you know we're both big David Bowie fans we actually met at the David Bowie exhibit um, great backstory for this podcast but yes. um, <laughs> but um by that point you know I was kind of watching this probably contemporaneously with whenever it was that I watched uh, the David Bowie inspired movie Velvet Goldmine and I was kind of the weird friend that would make all of my friends watch stuff like Labyrinth or but I'm a cheerleader when they'd be like <laughs> why aren't we watching a new film um, <laughs> but interestingly even though I feel like 
the fandom around this movie is a lot of adult women who saw this when they were maybe 10 or something and then like stuck onto it even though it didn't catch me at a formative stage it still very much resonates with me (laughs) you know in terms of all of the kind of the gender situations (laughs) yeah the kind of the romantic fantasy concept of a woman being able to get a shit man under her heel basically which is like the framework for most romance novels because okay usually it's like oh he's like a standoffish businessman and you just need to make him learn how to love but this is like well he's you know an evil kidnapping adult who's far too old to be dating 14 year old (laughs) jennifer connelly uh and he's you know and he's david boy but like at the same time you're like yeah i'm into it and then of course the end of the film is them negotiating this very kind of complex relationship balance where he's like you stay with me i'll be like you're obedient whatever and all this stuff (laughs) it's a lot so this is this is kind of what you watch is the training wheels before you're old enough to watch phantom thread which i think probably don't go for (laughs) until you're in your early 20s or so (laughs) i agree i agree well by the time you get to that end scene uh spoilers i guess and he's saying that stuff i was like this is a movie for children what is happening (laughs) (laughs) this is very inappropriate But what was really interesting to me watching it was like so many women have written about or just talked about or whatever, like this being a very formative sort of sexual experience film for them, right? And like you watch David Bowie in this movie and I was like, yes, I understand. He's and also he's like infamously his he's wearing like these ferociously tight leggings and like a giant cod piece. It's ridiculous. (laughs) It's so funny. But the movie is like you could do a very sort of deep dive close reading like Freudian analysis of this movie some of it's very superficially obvious and I'm sure if you were you know an academic doing again like shot by shot analysis of this movie you would find lots of stuff that I wasn't really picking up on there's lots dick stuff in this film like it's you could just go on and on and on but the sort of ultimate conclusion right is that she has to sort of escape and reject the sexiness that is david bowie to save her younger brother and in the process of doing that she does kind of grow up like her childhood bedroom at one point is literally destroyed she winds up giving one of her stuffed animal toys to her younger brother at the end and she's very protective of them at the beginning but the sort of danger of the movie is sex represented by david bowie and I was thinking, watching it, like, there are so many things, so many pieces of media, and I can't immediately think of another one, but I know that they exist, where that is the message, like, sex is dangerous and you should stay away. But the ultimate effect that they have and the reason that they are such cultural things is that they're really sexy. And then, like, the young people who watch or read them are like, I like this so much. Well, right, this and is, even this if you can't like... articulate why, like, that's the reason. But and it's, it's like Twilight is, like, thing. the bad version of yeah. this, right? It's like, admittedly, yeah. we are both judging Twilight without having watched it. But Twilight is the bad version of this. Twilight is just, it's actually written by a woman who I think she's very into sort of no sex, poor marriage kind of situation, which is not really, that's not really kind of the whole labyrinth background. But, um, that did not have a message of a bunch of people being like, let's not have sex for marriage. Mostly it was just people who were horny for vampires, which I completely understand. Yes, <laughs> yes I think that, that that is a good example. And what's funny about this movie is that even though that is nominally the, I mean, th- not the, the marriage thing, yeah. but the sexiness thing, 
like nominally the the text is saying you have to escape this person, which she does at the end. The stuff with David Bowie, it's not like they don't know what they're doing. Oh no. Right? Like he dances around singing in his like absurd leggings. Surely Jim Henson was aware the effect that this would have on people. I mean, this film went through a lot of very intriguing creative processes. Yes. There was a very long period when they were like, the Goblin King is just going to be a puppet too, so that wasn't going to be sexy. So the presence of David Bowie is the, the way this worked out. And like, it went through a million redrafts. And kind of, I think, although this is written by Terry Jones of Monty Python fame, it was given a wee bit of a polish by Elaine May, who is a kind of classic black and white film person, did some like rom-coms and so forth. And it's like, although obviously we will never know what happened at various different stages of the script, I think we can probably ascertain that some of the more teen girl oriented, romantically coherent elements came from her. <laughs> yes, I believe that that is a fair assumption to yes. make. Also, just from the like Wikipedia page of, I mean, who knows what you can glean from Wikipedia, but uh, I believe Terry Jones wanted the Goblin King just to show up at the end and then was like, fine, I'll add the singing and stuff, like whatever. And so, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of collaborative uh, stuff going on in general here. I did find his sort of name on the title card very interesting. I didn't know that he had written this or like a draft of this or whatever his actual contribution was because it definitely is quite Monty Python-esque in a lot of ways and the stuff that isn't Monty Python-esque is the teenage girl stuff so that all makes a lot of sense right but it's particularly reminiscent of Monty Python and the Holy Grail in that it's I mean it's very silly it's very silly yes and the structure is just these sort of unrelated bizarre episodes that are very absurdist yeah just kind of strung together and she goes from one to the next and there's not i mean the nominal plot is of course that she's trying to get closer and closer to the castle to rescue her brother and she sort of collects this group of friends along the way but it's very thin the yeah. plot. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's also for... like kind of disjointed, dreamlike Alice in Wonderland situation kind of tacked onto this hero's journey, kind of fantasy yeah. adventure arc. And the thing it most resembles is not any kind of modern conception of narrative, but the traditional like romance narrative. And I mean that in the classical sense of the word, not like romance as the way we think of romance, but Middle English or like Middle French romance where your hero would just go on a journey and then like weird random shit would happen to him because no one had quite figured out the concept of structure although for more on that listen to our black sales episode where we actually had an expert on the classic romance come and talk to us about that so (laughs) just some additional listening for you well we also discussed this somewhat talking about uh the recent Philip Pullman mm, mm-hmm. book, right? Which does a little bit of a similar thing. He's drawing on the Fairy Queen there, which is a more advanced example of that. Like Spencer by that point was doing something archaic, like people were writing more traditional narratives by that time. But it's interesting to sort of see more modern artists 
doing that. And like the Holy Grail is an example of that too. It's just like weird, random shit happening. Um, and in this film, this sort of dreamlike quality very much comes from that. And for a lot of the movie, she's making no progress whatsoever. Like nothing is, nothing's happening. Like she just goes from one place to the next and she's not getting any closer. And it works because what's actually compelling about the movie is not that she needs to save this baby who is a fucking baby. So like, he's not inherently compelling except that like, it's a pretty cute kid. Right. It's that the atmosphere and mood of the labyrinth is just so fucking bizarre that you're like, well, I guess I'll keep watching this. And obviously then David Bowie will show up every once in a while. And you're like, well, yeah, I'll keep watching for him, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And although it is very much kind of a rabbit hole of, just a lot of different themes that you can dig into as far as you like. I think it's very easy for kids and teenagers to pick up on the overall thrust of the themes, which is, you know, the girl has to accept her responsibilities as a more mature, almost adult and kind of be a responsible person who takes care of her brother and not just go off and run into the sunset with a crazy guy who stalks her. Right. <laughs> but weirdly without an overly moralizing tone, which is quite an unusual balance to achieve. Yes. I think that probably also partially comes from the fact that you see her parents for like five seconds and then they vanish. Oh, that is a common theme in most 80s children's movies where it was just like, well, go yeah. off and play. <laughs> right. And so you don't have the, like, even though the movie is about responsibility and again, sort of nominally textually, about her sort of allegiance to her family, it's very nominal because the actual parents are total non-entities. Like you see her stepmother and her stepmother is kind of unpleasant, but she's gone within five I mean, I'd literally forgotten that there were even parents in this. It's several years since I watched this movie. (laughs) Yeah. And again, the brother, like she doesn't like him because he's come in between her and her father, you presume. Mm. Because he's her half-brother. But, like, he's completely just an object. Because he's a baby. It's not like he's, like, a snotty, annoying five-year-old or something who's being really obnoxious and, like, terrible and she hates him. Like, it's a fucking baby. <laughs> so it's ju- completely just a function of the plot to have her have a thing to go after who is a person, so she has to feel bad. Like, obviously, you don't want this baby to be kidnapped. Although, when you see the shots of, like, David Bowie chilling with this baby, you're sort of like, this probably would be okay. Yeah. Like, the baby would probably be fine either way. Like, it's it's all right. But, yeah, like, it's it's very much sort of using these things as window dressing, I think. But, as you say, the sort of theme of her becoming more responsible is in the movie. I think the relationship she has with her her friends, the the puppets, actually demonstrate that more than her relationship to the baby, which isn't real in any like, concrete way. She becomes sort of less stupid over the course of the film in a nice way. At the beginning, she's very dumb. In a way that's like realistic and teenagery, so it's fine. She does lots of very stupid things, and you're like, oh, no. And then she sort of progresses and and does less dumb things over the course of the her journey into the labyrinth. I was like, oh, you're learning very slowly. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> I mean, I feel like as a 
fairy tale, this really taps into a certain kind of 13-year-old girl aesthetic, which is rarely kind of embraced this much. Um, <laughs> and I think the concept designer, Brian Froud, has sort of made a career out of drawing essentially fairy tale stuff, and he did all of the costumes as well. And it is really interesting to see a film that is primarily made by men, especially the costume designer, managing to like go the whole hog and being like, well, she's going to have this like tremendously frilly ball gown, which is one of the most evocative images in the whole movie, you know, because it's like they even introduced Jennifer Connelly as someone who is a fantasist. You know, she's got these kind of imaginary games she's playing where she's kind of imagining herself as a princess and stuff. So she's, you know, regular like 13 year old girl embarrassing LARPing stuff, which the film is really amusing and self-aware about. And then when she gets into the, you know, the labyrinth dimension, she does end up having this dream sequence where she's wearing this gorgeous ball gown. And it's like, this is just perfect. I mean, the 2000s equivalent of this is definitely Jupiter Ascending. Because that is just as like completely just going straight for the end and being like, what if everyone was just like a dragon? You had like a cool ball gown and we had spaceships (laughs) and your boyfriend was a werewolf and he like runs around in rollerblades and he loves you. Like, you know, it's great. That is a great comparison. I fully agree. Yeah. Well, what's funny about this and fun about this is that the 13 year old thing, you picked exactly the right age, right? Yeah. Whereas usually movies will either go for like children. And I mean, obviously you can watch this as a child. Yeah, this is definitely a kid friendly film and the story is just so silly. Like you can watch this as like an infant. Right. But the aesthetic and is like specifically targeted to and evocative of that exact age and movies usually are either for kids or for like teenagers yeah or specifically teenage boys because i feel like the teen movie genre is basically aimed at girls you know the the kind of mean girls thing and that will you will see girls who are in their mid to late teens but they're all kind of realistic and the ones that are kind of the new generation of young adult kind of fantasy sci-fi stuff is very sort of adventure movie oriented whereas this is because this has such such sticking power I mean partly because of David Bowie's presence because like duh but partly because there's just so few movies that kind of illustrate the kind of female fantasy situation whereas you have like a bajillion things that are kind of the Dungeons and Dragons thing which is more I guess like traditionally masculine Right, and I think that was part of the reason why Jupiter Ascending oh, no, of course. splash, Naturally. right? <laughs> then all the critics were like, this is terrible. Why would anyone want to see this? And then, I mean, not that it was a big box office hit, obviously, but certainly the reaction on the internet from women of our general sort of demographic was different yes. than that reaction. <laughs> and it still gets talked about and stuff, like often on yeah. Twitter. And that's because there isn't anything else. Yeah. Like, that's I mean, it. We, we, like, in terms of, like, the, the film discourse, I would say that critics have more respect for Cloud Atlas, but in terms of actual cultural impact, no one fucking remembers Cloud Atlas, and loads of people have very strong opinions about Jupiter Ascending, even if it's people who are just like, this is garbage. Yes, absolutely. And... Definitely the, the This Is Garbage people, I think, were set off by people like us being like, this is great. And then they were very upset because they didn't understand. But And I can understand people not liking Labyrinth, right? Because it I think the thing to compare it with, right, is um the, the other 
kind of 80s fantasy movie by Jim Henson, which is The Dark Crystal, which is a lot more kind of Lord of the Rings-ish, like dark adventure movie. And I feel like it's a lot easier to recognise that as an adult and watch it and be like, I get that. Whereas this is so kind of childish and silly that you need to have a personal resonance with the whole romantic aspect or it's just not going to really work. And you're going to be like, I don't understand why people are like dying over this aspect of their childhood when it's clearly not that good. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it and like Jennifer Connelly has had a very odd career. I don't think she works very much anymore. And Well, I think she she does. She makes indie movies herself and with her husband, Paul Bettany. Yeah, it's not like she doesn't work at all, but she definitely doesn't work as much as she did, say, 10 or 15 years ago. I can't, ima- I can't imagine why that would happen to women in her late 40s. <laughs> yes, yes. But they also have little kids, yeah. and I get the impression that probably she's spending time with them, which like is completely fine, and I obviously respect that. But she never, like, she made a lot of quite like boring prestige dramas in the early aughts, famously won an Oscar for... A Beautiful Mind, which I don't think anyone uh, particularly supported. I've not seen that, and I didn't know she was in it. She is. I'm going to spoil A Beautiful Mind for you, a film I've never, I've never watched. She is a figment of Russell Crowe's. Oh wait, I knew someone was a figment of someone's imagination. Film, yeah. Um, Obviously, the most kind of notable film that she has made from a film critic perspective is Requiem for a Dream, the Darren Aronofsky movie. But I was thinking about this, watching this, and I was like, I'm pretty sure that this film, Labyrinth, is the most culturally enduring. Yeah, for sure. She is she, she is the made. Labyrinth girl. Yeah. Which is funny. I mean, it's just a weird thing. Like, imagine being Jennifer Connelly and being like, yeah, I peaked at 14 or whatever. <laughs> like, all right. And it's not a particularly good performance. Which is fine. She's mostly acting with puppets. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Luke Skywalker in the very first Star Wars film. Because they both are intentionally being just like a snotty teenage asshole, you know. And I think, you know, Mark Hamill is a bit better. But also, she's perfect for like what she's meant to be doing here. Oh yeah, it doesn't detract from the film at all. It's totally fine. But she's very much just... And it's a very 80s type of thing. For sure. Like, she's delivering lines in this, like, very sincere and slightly plastic way. And it it's just kind of entertaining. And you're like, that's okay. <laughs> you have a silly vest on. Well, you can <laughs> look forward to seeing her in a movie this year, Morgan. Alita Battle Angel. Which, if you oh recall, is the oh weird-ass one where fucking James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez decided that the best way to adapt an anime would be to computer-enhance the female lead's eyes so she has giant weird-ass CGI eyes. So, safe to say I've prejudged this somewhat. <laughs> yes, I remember watching the... It was a trailer or just footage they released or yeah. whatever it was. And having the most sort of horrified uncanny valley reaction that i think i've ever had to anything in my life so i won't be seeing that that's a hard no i will be seeing it because it is my professional duty and also i'm very curious like i wasn't curious about ready player one which i will never watch but um this this i will probably be viewing with my own two eyes oh just fyi if anyone tries to make us watch ready player one on patreon not happening that's a solid (laughs) no yeah, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> well, that's another, that's like a, a good comparison, right? In terms of like 
things catering to the teenage boy desire right which is hilarious because it's all these fucking 80s references so it's like teenage boys from the time that this movie came out comically but i'm sure i'm sure there is no labyrinth reference in there i bet there's not there can't be oh i mean no fucking way but i'm sure the people who made it thought that like the teens of today would also be into it it's like no 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 that's not what they care about please desist but the the idea that that audience will just like never be satiated and just continue yeah forever Versus the teenage girls who buy a gazillion young adult fantasy books. Every I mean, year. I really feel like there's the, the the niches that are really not being filled right now are horse girl movies and dragon girl movies because oh I'm sure God. there's a lot of made for TV movies for horse girls, right? But yeah, you know, I think it's time for us to have a full on horse girl renaissance just to fulfill the desires of all those kids. I mean, I was a full on horse girl for many years. Never actually took writing lessons because I begged my mother and she was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but initially the only reason I even watched Game of Thrones is because I was promised dragons and I was so fucking pissed off that the dragon eggs don't hatch until the season one finale. The finale. Just, they're, I mean, yeah, they teased us and it was awful. I was also had a long dragon period as, again, most people of our sort of specific demographic, I think, did. And there's just so much that they could be doing. I mean, this, there may know? be a Temeraire adaptation in the works. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I mean, I had a whole trilogy of novels planned out when I was around 11 years old about dragons that never came to fruition. You'll be shocked to hear. Oh, I love <laughs> like, you. Come on, man. <laughs> yep. I had a big notebook. My mom was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm planning my novels. She was like, okay. <laughs> sure. Basically, they need to make movies like this. Well, they are. They've been noodling around a sequel to this, I which see that, yeah, which which, is which the Nicole worst idea well, ever. yeah. I mean, it's a bad idea because like you can't follow up something which is so specifically rooted in like this time period and the visual style, and obviously David Bowie. Um, but the suggestion I have seen from fans, obviously, most fans are like, "This is a fucking bad idea," which I agree with. But the interesting suggestion I saw was Janelle Monae. Because that is the equivalent yeah. person you can put in a vehicle of this kind. And I don't think they would get her, and I don't think that they're, it's likely that they will find someone that it'll work for, because David Bowie has such a high level of just being... I mean, you know, David Bowie is just an icon, so you can't replace him. Right. And you can't have an actor just playing that role. But if they could get Janelle Monet, obviously, obviously that's the solution. I agree. I fully agree. Um, yeah, that would be great. Or just something of in this vein for her would be very fun. Yeah. I think. Um, I was thinking also watching this about, I really want to see more of his acting work. He was just such a, he was so amazing. It's incredible. I watched a film that he was in recently-ish called The Hunger. I really Catherine want Deneuve. to see. It's Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. It's a vampire movie. And... I mean, again, spoilers, whatever. He does not uh, last the whole film, which is really unfortunate because the whole movie is very good. It's not like he yeah. gets ruined after he's no longer there, but he's definitely the best part. And he's just, he was such a good actor. I was like, how are you so good at everything? It's just outrageous. <laughs> like, I've never seen The Man Who Fell to Earth. I haven't seen either. Um, I've, I've, I don't yeah. think I've seen other David Bowie roles. I think the only thing I've seen is when he's in Twin Peaks playing it. Well, now now playing a teapot, replaced by a giant teapot. 
uh, intriguing. Well, way. we have we have both seen the Prestige. Oh no, of course, yeah. In which Late he briefly boy. appears, yeah. yeah, as Tesla, which of course is you know extremely entertaining, but not a, a major major thing. I'm pretty sure when I first saw that, I like didn't know what had no cognizance of what was happening. And was just like, oh, this is fun. I'm sure if I watched it again now, I'd be like, oh my god. There's David Bowie with his like hair <laughs> playing Tesla. He's so great, though, in his, with his terrible wig. The fact that he manages to be so sexy with the I'm worst sorry, but his wig time. is amazing. I love no, no. his wig. It doesn't look no. like a real hair, but I, I just love... The whole look is so good. And I just wish that more films could just really lean into allowing people to just look their mostest. You know, that is what <laughs> Jupiter Ascending does. Jupiter Ascending is like, how about if Eddie Redmayne was wearing gold embossed robes, but no shirt? No reason for that. And just many different elements of robes throughout the film. And in this, it's like, put David Bowie in a combination of a giant billowy poets shirt, very tight trousers, and a tremendously large wig. Thank you, Brian Froud, for envisioning that. Although I imagine David Bowie himself had a significant oh contribution to his look. <laughs> I am certain that that is true. The number of sort of billowy tops and interesting asymmetrical jackets that he wears, really impressive. Genuinely really, a style really inspiration good. for me as a teen, although I did not sadly have access to enough materials to really lean into that. <laughs> right. Uh, oh although I am, as we, mo- as we speak right now, I am wearing a billowy white shirt and black leggings and a jacket with a giant lion on it, so... <laughs> There you go. See, the things we consume as young people stay with us. Yeah, this is great. I hope that you all got to enjoy it as young people. And even if you didn't, you should probably just have people over and and watch it together. It's, it's very entertaining. There's some really bad CGI at the beginning, which is also funny. I mean, charmingly period-specific CGI, I think we can call it. Oh, yeah. As. It was the first CGI. entertaining. Yeah. This is the most 80s film Period. There's this just so much. There's so much 80s happening. So again, thank you to Vanessa for forcing us to watch it because this was really fun. And next week, um, so next week's episode is going to be a TV episode. We are going to be discussing the Terror, which if you follow me on social media, you will have heard of because it's about polar explorers, and I fucking love polar explorers. Um, it airs on AMC. It just started in the UK. I think by that point, it will either be finished or almost finished. Morgan's going to watch a few episodes, so you've got some time to check out the Terror, so we can discuss the finest of topics, which is Victorian men dying horribly in the snow. Um, and then the week after that, we will be talking about Killing Eve, which Morgan will tell you about because I haven't watched it yet. So what is Killing Eve? So Killing Eve is a show, a BBC show that's currently airing on BBC America. It is my favorite thing on TV right now, except my beloved show, The Americans. It is about a serial killer who is being uh, tracked by an American agent working for the British government, played by Sandra Oh, who is so wonderful in this show. It is written by Phoebe Waller-Bridges, who did Fleabag. It is simultaneously absolutely hilarious and very moving. It has been compared to Hannibal by someone, to me. It is very stylistically different from Hannibal. Like It's not going to evoke similar things, but the sort of dynamic is very similar in terms of like the 
obsession, except it's about women in a very specific way, which is very satisfying to me. Uh, I cannot recommend it it highly enough. It's only six episodes. Um, It's just, it's so, so, so great. Please watch it. I, I love it so much. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. I think that'll be really fun. Uh, so we'll have some TV coming up. Switch it up a little bit. Uh, as always, we would love it if you subscribe to our Patreon. We have some fun stuff up there, and we will have more fun stuff. You can find us there at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And otherwise, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or at Tumblr on over at overinvested podcast. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>